Support for WABE comes from Virtual Imaging, believing it's not just about living longer, it's about living healthier longer. Providing medical diagnostics to help catch deadly or debilitating diseases early. You can learn more on proactive screenings at virtualimagingatl.com. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Atlanta voter Wanda Beckham was shocked her vote didn't count in the May primary. What? Get out of here. Beckham cast an absentee ballot this year. She applied for one as early as she could and sent it back in the mail. By the time her ballot got to the County Board of Elections, Election Day had passed. It really sucks <laughs> when you're making trying to make a conscious effort of doing the right thing and then when it doesn't. I'm sorry. I know that's not the best comment, but... That's the realest one that I have. You know, some people think that their vote don't count. I don't want to be that person. Georgia's May primary was the biggest test yet of the sweeping election law Republicans passed last year. Georgia experienced record turnout for a midterm primary, but the share of voters who used absentee ballots took a nosedive. More than 1,200 Georgia absentee ballots were rejected in May for arriving too late. Republican Secretary of State Brett Raffensperger has touted high turnout as evidence that SB 202 struck the right balance. I think confidence has been restored in the system and people understand that it's really easy to vote in Georgia, but also we have the appropriate guardrails to keep people from cheating. But Democrats like State Representative B. Wynn, the Democratic nominee for Secretary of State, says strong turnout doesn't mean Georgia's new law didn't affect voters. We should not view voters' resiliency as a reflection of whether or not the ballot box is accessible. How will Georgia's voting laws affect the 2022 midterms and why we should all pay attention to voting laws in Georgia and around the country? We'll talk to Jessica Hoosman, editorial director of the nonprofit publication Vote Beat. I'm Sam Greenglass, politics reporter at WABE in Atlanta. I'm Susanna Capaluto, politics editor at WABE. I'm Emma Hurt, a reporter with Axios. And I'm Raul Bally, a WABE politics reporter. And this is Georgia Votes 2022, a campaign podcast from WABE. I vote because it's a privilege. I vote it's a duty. because I want to make an and impact. I vote my because local I want leaders who care voting about Voting is the gift of so freedom. So voting matters to me because I believe there is value in my voice. So Sam, what did the May primary tell us about how Georgia's new voting law affected voters? Well, let's just look at one piece of this law, and that's absentee ballots. Uh, There were a lot of changes to absentee ballots in the new law. And what we found is that only about 4% of voters cast absentee ballots in May. Uh, That number was 49% in the June 2020 primary and about 26% in November of 2020 for the presidential election. So Part of this, of course, is due to the pandemic subsiding, uh, people feeling more comfortable going to vote in person. 
But I've also heard from election officials who say that many older, especially minority voters who typically vote absentee, were so worried that the new law changes would trip them up and cause their vote not to be counted that they trudged into a polling place to vote in person and make sure that their vote counted. Uh, More than 2.6% of absentee ballots were rejected in May. That's up from about 1% in June 2020. And election data also shows that those rejections disproportionately affected minority voters. So that's just one snapshot of one way in which this law has played out for voters in this last election. Now, Raul, remind us quickly what Georgia's 2021 election law did. Look, there was a lot in that 98-page bill that Republicans passed last year. Much of it was focused on absentee voting, adding an ID requirement to absentee balloting. Absentee ballot drop boxes were limited. Also something that we really saw in Georgia's runoffs is that window between election day and runoff day has been shortened. It used to be nine weeks. It's now just four weeks. So we had a May 24th primary with a June 21st runoff. Under the old law, we would still be in the middle of the runoff election right now. And there were some other effects with that shortened window. Less time for election officials to certify the results and then having to turn around to get ready for the runoff. Look, When we get to the November elections, you know, if the Georgia governor's race or the U.S. Senate race gets forced into a runoff, that's just four weeks to get to the runoff election. We're going to be working on Thanksgiving, y'all. But not on Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll just say that's, you know, just a handful of the many, many changes that were in the sweeping election law. And Emma, why did Republican lawmakers pursue these changes? Yeah, I mean... We all covered this. This law is something of a Rorschach test. You can see whatever you want to see in it, I think. I heard someone say. Um, But we can't deny that the reason there was this massive Republican push is because of the false claims of voter fraud in 2020. Republicans trying desperately to appease their voter base after tens of thousands didn't show up in the Senate runoffs because they were skeptical of the system. Um, There were some things in this bill that Democrats, you know, independently probably would have voted for. But because it was all wrapped up in the politics of 2020, that is certainly how it has been perceived and how the votes came down in the General Assembly right along party lines. All right, we're going to do something a little different this week and turn to special guest Jessica Hoosman. Jessica is the editorial director of VoteBeat. That's a nonprofit outlet dedicated to coverage of voting across the country. And for many years, Jessica covered voting rights for ProPublica, Welcome, Jessica. Thank you. So I'm curious, when you started out as a reporter, could you have envisioned there would be an appetite or even a need for an entire outlet that's just dedicated to covering voting? No, no, not at all. I didn't even think I was going to be covering voting. Um, When I I was first hired by ProPublica, I was... um, covering the healthcare industry, like mostly pharmaceutical companies. I did not envision that, you know, six years later, I would be running a newsroom covering voting. Jessica, what do you think has caused that? What has changed so much? Oh, Donald Trump. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny because when I first started covering election administration and voting rights for ProPublica, it was right before the 2016 election. And You know, I mean, I I would say, oh, I I cover election administration and people were like, so campaigns. And I was like, no. Uh, And now uh, that like there's been four years of 
misinformation and incredible fervor over the topic of voter fraud and machine security and all of this stuff. Like I tell people, oh, like I run a newsroom that covers election administration and they're like, oh my goodness, let's discuss the particulars of the Dominion voting conspiracy. And you're like, okay. Uh, So it's, I mean, it's just like such a, it's such a different landscape out there right now that even when I started covering this beat and um, anyway, it's just a fascinating time to do it. I mean, it's a big accident that I've been covering it for so long, but I feel like I'm in the right place. Is there a trend or something that we need as reporters and for our listeners that we kind of need to focus on or be paying attention as we go into the 2022 midterms? You know, I think that the trend that I'm most concerned about is the the rollback of vote by mail availability across the United States. Um, and this is a backlash by the Republican Party for, you know, they're they're not very successful year in 2020, um, but also sort of continuing the misinformation that Donald Trump began um, during the 2020 campaign around vote by mail and its propensity for fraud and its ability to be manipulated and all of this stuff, none of which is true, um, but that it didn't really matter that it wasn't true, right? We Legislatures across the country started to roll that back, even in states where vote by mail has been a really, really popular option. Um, and, and even in states in which they essentially invented vote by mail. I mean, Arizona uh, essentially came up with the, the vote by mail system that most states are using today and drastically rolled it back um, because of these specious claims that vote by mail is not safe. Um, so it's, it's frustrating to watch that specifically. I'm curious also what you think about the state of litigation in elections, because to me, to us as reporters, it feels like it's a new level. Is that our imagination? And and how do you see that affecting how like local elections offices and secretary of state's offices are able to function now? No, you're not imagining that. There are so many more lawsuits now. Um, when I started covering this six years ago, right, like, in the in the early days of the Trump administration, um, most of the lawsuits that I was focused in on um, all, were about redistricting or were about voter ID issues, sort of the, like the, the bread and butter stuff that people were used to talking about <laughs> around that time. But as Trump has made this a sort of mainstay on the campaign trail and in the White House and everywhere, um, people have have started focusing on it more and they believe what he is saying. And so um, and so these lawsuits tend to be unhinged, um, but they are still costing folks a lot of time. I mean, you asked about how election administrators are dealing with this and you know not well i mean a lot of these lawsuits are predatory and are aimed at just like eking out information from these offices that they intend to use in a bad faith way or lawsuits about things that have been 
consistently used in the state for years and years and years and have never been a problem. Um, so I, there, there is a huge trend of, of litigation here. And I think it is helped by the fact that the parties have such an appetite now for these kind of lawsuits, right? The Republican Party obviously has quite an appetite. Uh, and the Democratic Party now is much more proactive than it, than it has been in recent decades on issues of voting rights and disenfranchisement. And so both of them are just suing everybody. Yeah. And how does Georgia fit into this picture? I mean, are we among the most litigated? Are we not? <laughs> you know what? Like, I, I think that Georgia is not, there are not, as many lawsuits in Georgia as you would imagine, given the the place that Georgia holds in the national conversation about voting rights. But the lawsuits that are happening in Georgia are very consequential. Um, so there has been, for example, a lawsuit in Georgia about the security of the Dominion voting system that the state selected. Um, for voters to use. And that's been going on for a couple of years. Um, but, and, and it was actually, this is so interesting. It was brought by a pretty progressive group um, that that is a big fan of hand-marked paper ballots. Uh, and this was brought well before Trump started throwing around conspiracy theories of, about Dominion. Um, and if you look at some of the things that Donald Trump and his allies say about the Dominion voting system, they're like ripping that straight from this lawsuit. And so even when Georgia isn't like the center of the universe, it it's it's influential. Well, Jessica, let's take a quick break. I'm Susanna Capaluto, and this is Georgia Votes 2022. Support for WABE comes from Virtual Imaging, providing proactive medical diagnostics to catch deadly or debilitating diseases early, using state-of-the-art equipment to detect warning signs or offer peace of mind. You can take charge of your health at virtualimagingatl.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Georgia Votes 2022. Today with Sam Greenglass, Raul Bali, and Emma Hurd, and our special guest, Jessica Hoosman. Jessica, obviously 2020 was a banner year for all this disinformation, misinformation. I mean, we've tried as reporters the best we, we could to say... No, there wasn't. No, there wasn't. And we all talk to voters still who insist something went wrong, no matter the facts on the ground. And have you found anything, any argument, a, a comment that could help someone who, who may encounter a person who just won't admit that they may have been wrong in assuming something went wrong? Like, how do you convince these people to kind of trust the system again? You know what? Your guess is as good as mine. Like I've been covering this for six years and I'm really not sure how one convinces these folks without just an incredible amount of information. I think, you know, Gabe Sterling, uh, who, who works for the Georgia Secretary of State's office and has become quite famous, um, said, said something when he testified in front of the January 6th commission, which was essentially like, people believe this stuff in their hearts, right? Like 
it is entirely possible to sit these folks down who like believe this really deeply and convince them that like one isolated thing that they believe is not true, right? Like it would be entirely possible for me to sit down with somebody who believes all of these things and then pick one of those things out. Like, you know, the conspiracy over the State Farm Arena in Atlanta or the craziness around Dominion, right? Like if I isolated one of those conspiracies and broke down why it's false, more likely than not, like these people will be like, oh, okay, that's fine. But you would have to do that for every single conspiracy theory, right? There is no point in which like you start just proving enough of them that the entire castle falls. Um, and, and so that I think is, is really quite troubling to me. Um, and, and I think that it's a problem that we're going to be dealing with like literally for generations. Yeah. And I enjoyed your profile of Gabe Sterling that you wrote after he testified. And his argument is it may just take time. Yeah. And, and, and I know, you know, I mean, it, it's so his underlying point is, is like actually quite sad and, 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 and in some like perverse way um, has, has like given me a little bit of hope, like his, his position and, and one that I, I've given a lot of thought to, and I think is actually correct is that there is no convincing the people that believe this stuff that the 2020 election was legitimate. Like we're just never going to win that battle. The only thing that we can do is kind of forget it happened and move on, right? Like his, his idea is that we can get over this if the Republican party and the Democratic party, I mean, frankly, mostly the Republican party, um, starts acting like adults and like doesn't challenge every moving piece in an election, right? Like if we just stop doing this and like pretend like there were no concerns raised and we all move on, then everyone will forget about these concerns. And, and maybe they'll believe that the 2020 election was stolen until the day that they die, but they don't have to believe that the 2024 election was stolen. And so if, as you're saying, like, some of these people just can't be reached in terms of convincing them that there was no stolen 2020 election. Do you think that the parties will be able to satisfy them as in, will there just be more and more new election laws passed until, as you say, the parties just decide to stop listening? Is that, is that what, is that where we are? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I, I think that, I think that that's like, honestly, the end game. I mean, the other solution, right, is that the federal government steps in in some capacity. But, uh, you know, I don't even, I'm like not even taking myself seriously as those words come out of my mouth. Like, like the federal government is capable of any progress in this space, apparently. So, you know, if, if the federal government were to pass a sweeping bill like H.R. 1 or the Department of Justice were to take a much more aggressive stance, then, then I think that this could be brought to a close a little bit faster. Um, but I, I don't know that there's, there's certainly not appetite to do that in Congress. And so, you know, I, I, I think that 
I think that the only thing that it can do is fizzle out. I'm curious, you know, here in Georgia, we've already seen just in the last year or so some tangible effects of the new voting law that was passed after the 2020 election. Uh, For example, you know, far fewer people seem to be voting absentee under these new rules. I wonder, though, at the same time, when we hear from Democrats and opponents of the new rules that this is, you know, Jim Crow 2.0, that millions of people are going to be wholesale disenfranchised by these laws. Does that feel like it's overhyped in some ways and actually hurts arguments that these laws are, are, are dangerous? Oh, yes, absolutely. And I'm glad that you asked that question. You know, Democrats are really out on a ledge when they claim that the law is literally Jim Crow 2.0. I mean, like, it's it's sort of a shocking exaggeration of, of the severity of the law and I think ignores some of its more helpful elements. Like, I, I am, I'm under no impression that on balance, this is a good law, right? Like, but, but it is certainly not Jim Crow 2.0. And, and, and so I think that the exaggeration that Democrats have sort of fallen into around voting rights is unfortunate because there are enough real problems for them to go after rather than sort of like freaking out about like someone standing in line for three minutes not being able to get a bottle of water. The law really chops at the margins. I always bring up the 12,000 votes that decided the presidential election in Georgia for Joe Biden. The new law, for example, outlaws mobile voting units. And the mobile voting unit in Fulton County got 6,000 votes. There is this little underlying element of where can we shave things where maybe some less inclined voters would vote. You know, and I, and I think that the point you just made is is a good one because stuff like that is a huge problem. But voting is such a nuanced and different thing from state to state that people who talk about it on the right and the left, like I, I don't mean to say that the left is the only party that's guilty of this. They, they sort of oversimplify it and then pick the easiest things to explain to complain about. Um, so that people who don't know a lot about voting and election administration can follow along and can be just as outraged, right? Like it is so much easier to get outraged about celebrity chefs not being able to hand out their food truck food in line than it is to like be like, oh, 6,000 people won't be able to mobile vote. Like that, like that's not sexy. And so I, I think that there's this tendency to sort of like, find the sexy thing, even if it's not a good point, and just like beat it to death. I mean, do you find, Jessica, that it's impossible to have nuanced conversations about voting laws and voting in the year 2022 because you hear rhetoric from both sides that kind of muddies the water of what might actually be happening on the ground in many cases? You know what? Yes, but I feel it getting better. Um, and, and I think that there are a couple of reasons for that. I think the first reason of, I think people are, I think after January 6th, people realized that the temperature is, is too hot and, and have been asking better and more nuanced questions. Um, and, and, and I, and I'm really sort of, I'm really encouraged by that. Um, and then also, I think that election administrators have found their voice in ways that 
I find really encouraging in the last year. Um, I mean, like they have been through it, like with all of these conspiracies and dealing with COVID. I mean, like there are people are quitting that industry in droves, but the, the ones that are still there have started to actively lobby for better treatment and for um, better voting laws and better voting procedures and additional funding from the federal government. I mean, Secretary of State, elections directors, county clerks, like these were such sleepy positions. There was really never a need prior to the last couple of years for county clerks to like march down to their state legislature and advocate that a law not be passed because it'll totally ruin their jobs. Like they figured out how to become much more effective messengers, both to lawmakers and also to the public. That will only lead to better outcomes for voters. So Jessica, what are you going to be watching on election night here in a couple of months? You know, I think what I'm going to be watching on election night is the behavior of poll watchers and party activists who are sent to observe the counting process. Um, You know, I, I think that people have exaggerated the likelihood of, you know, armies of poll watchers marching around and disrupting voters. There's concerns about that every year that never really pan out for like a lot of reasons, but they never really pan out. This year, I, I worry they might. I mean, like this this country has reached a bit of a fever pitch here. And, you know, Donald Trump is still out there really riling his most ardent base up. And so I don't think that we'll see, you know, a shocking number of examples of poll watchers and party activists disrupting polls. Like that's just a very rare thing. But I think that we might see more of it this year. And then, you know, this will be the first federal election cycle after all of these states, Georgia, Texas, Florida, passed these big laws. And even if they're not Jim Crow 2.0, they do, as you say, change things around the margins. And so I will be interested to see how these laws play out in a federal election cycle and whether or not we see repeats of some of the sort of like hints of problems um, that we've seen in primaries and 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 early and local elections, given these new requirements. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for uh, coming on and talking with us. Thank you, guys. Jessica Hoosman, editorial director of VoteBeat. And that's it for this edition of Georgia Votes 2022. Sam, Raul, Emma... Great to chat with all of you. See y'all next week. Great. We'll see you next week. Georgia Votes 2022 is a production of the WABE Politics Desk. Please check out our other podcasts, including Political Breakfast and TechCast from WABE. We'll see you next week. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us, georgiavotes at wabe.org. 
Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org slash election 2024. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE Politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE Politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.